0: Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, December 2nd, 2013. I'm Pat Coleman.
1: And I'm Keith McMillan.
0: And we're starting our Around the Nation podcast this week from the place where Keith and I were on Saturday at Dover, Delaware, where Wesley defeated Ithaca by the score of 23-15. Part of a day, Keith, in which there were a, a lot of first-round blowouts, a game here that came down to an onside kick with three minutes left, a final play game uh, that decided the game between Bethel and Warburg, and then a surprising barn burner at uh, Hampton, Sydney, and Linfield. But uh, talking first about the game that we witnessed on Saturday, uh, a game in which, uh, you know, if you've already seen our uh, D3 report, we've talked about this a little bit. But one of the things I really wanted to focus on was how dominant defensively Wesley was, especially against the run and then later against the pass as the, uh, as the Wolverines ended up sacking Tom Dempsey seven times in the win. Yeah, I thought that was... Wesley's strong suit that w- was their interior defensive line and also their rush
1: off the edge. Mike Drass talked about it a little bit in the post game where he says you know, he prefers to play zone defense, but they went to a little bit of man on Saturday against Ithaca so that they could you know get diff- use different pressure packages to make uh, to make Tom Dempsey get rid of the ball quickly and it worked for the most part. And then Ithaca, for their credit. Or to their credit, they figured it out, and they were able to complete a lot of short balls in the in the third quarter and the fourth quarter, to where they could um, you know make it a close game. They came, they drove down the field. They didn't get in. They got the ball back quickly. They got in. They got the two point conversion, and it was an eight point game in the final few minutes. And so it ended up being one of the most entertaining games of the first round.
0: Uh, a lot of Ithaca's offense, uh, other than the uh, the kind of short passing game that uh, Keith just described in the fourth quarter, was uh, kickoff returns. Had a huge kickoff return to open the game, a 64-yarder that uh, put them within striking distance. And then uh, Wesley came up with a couple of big sacks to knock them back out of field goal range.
1: Sure, and, and really every time Wesley needed a big play in this game, it came up with a sack. And uh, they were they were just. The difference between the two teams isn 't really all that much when you could talk about their skill players, uh, but I thought the difference was really pronounced uh, along that offensive line. I thought I was most impressed with the defensive tackles, but they got a lot of rush and, and they came up with the key sacks and I should note that I said first round earlier, and we are definitely
0: talking about the second round of the playoffs. Indeed. Um, the uh, Ithaca got themselves on the board in the first quarter after uh, Wesley had missed an extra point. Uh, Sam Carney returned uh, the second kickoff of the game, 91 yards for a touchdown. Um, But after that, uh, Wesley did... uh, First of all, they answered with a field goal, so Stork, who had missed the extra point, uh, got a 35-yard field goal. Uh, They got a Jamar Baynard touchdown run off a five-play 82-yard drive to make it 16-7 at the half, and then they opened the third quarter with... I wouldn't say a bruising, but a pretty methodical and a time-crunching drive that ended up uh, taking up the first eight minutes of the, th- uh, of the third quarter.
1: And that was the, the touchdown drive that put a little distance between the Wolverines and the Bombers on Saturday. It was a, a key drive, obviously, in the game, but it was also, I think, for, for momentum purposes, it was big. You know, any Any... Joe Callahan said this in the post game. You know, the Wesley quarterback, any drive that ends with a touchdown is a good drive. But when you can put it together uh, over the course of eight minutes, I think it is it is really um, good for your for your momentum. And I think it, it helps on in this case for Wesley because. Um, up until that point, they'd really been surviving on big plays and, and stuff that they couldn't sustain And at that point in the game. It was the first real sustained drive that they'd had. And just a little bit of everything that they did work. They had some uh, nice plays to Boehner. They had a completion to the tight end, uh, George, on on that drive. They had a, a hit, you know, uh, they used Jeremiah Howe. Wesley basically doesn't have one dominant offensive weapon and especially today i didn't think uh they got the ball to steve could enough so they mixed it up and they gave it to a lot of their their good players and that's one of the reasons why they're advancing
0: uh in fact they gave to the ball to jeremiah Howe in a couple different ways they've uh you know he came in Howe came into the afternoon with just nine carries on the season but over the course of the last couple of weeks they've been using him you know a little bit more uh, you know, as a as a fly slot back, basically, for lack of a better term, that he goes into motion quite a bit. Sometimes they hand it to him, sometimes they don't. But he was uh, effective, both uh, on the sweep and in the passing game.
1: Yeah, basically, what it is, if if you have never seen Wesley play, it it looks like a jet sweep. Someone how uh, lines up in the slot, he comes across the formation, and then Callahan is running basically the read option, but he has two. Two reads he can give it to Hal going across the formation he can give it to Baynard straight up the middle or he can keep it himself uh, if the defensive end crashes, so he only kept it one or two times, but he does it just enough to, to keep the offense honest and that 's something certainly anybody who 's watching the game next week out in the alliance will, uh, will see a little bit of that from the wesley offense
0: and that 's something that we learned in the post game on Saturday was that uh, that was not a, a predetermined handoff or a predetermined whatever he was going to do with the ball, that it really was a read at the at the, uh, at the time of attack.
1: Yeah, and, and then Wesley later in the game, they started adding some wrinkles off it. They ran a reverse from that, that jet sweep action or sprint sweep, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and so that's sort of the way that Wesley's offense builds over the course of the game, not just over the course of a season, but they add little things to it. And I think that's what makes them tough to defend
0: Quickly about Ithaca, I mean, you know, there's a a team, a a program that's been down a little bit over the last few years. Um, You know, for example, when uh, Mike Welch won his 150th career game this year, uh, won it against St. John Fisher, that ended a streak of eight consecutive times that they had lost to the Cardinals. Um, Does, you know, do we think, do we think Ithaca's back on the upswing? Are they, you know, a a player again for the next few years at this point? Because they seemed relatively young on offense.
1: I would say so. Part of the reason is they found a quarterback, and, and they had switched from Phil Newman to Tom Dempsey over the course of the season, and Dempsey played well. He was poised down the stretch. They also had a lot of youth at different places. You know, Some of their key defensive players were seniors, the, the twin defensive ends and, and Will... Um, Carter, the defensive back. I mean, the linebacker, uh, the, the graduate student. You know, he won't be back next year. But a lot of the rest of those guys uh, were young guys, and they'll you know, or even if they were juniors, they'll be back next year. So I think they'll be uh, a big player. And, and that was probably one of the big themes of this particular game on Saturday was that we were watching two teams who weren't the perfect ideal team. You know, we, we can look at some of the teams in, in this tournament and say maybe North Central or Mary Harden Baylor, and that's the they have a team that's you know poised to potentially go really deep into this tournament, uh, maybe to Salem because it's the it's the best. They have their best guys at every position. They're older, uh, they're very well experienced in that. But I didn't think either of those those teams on Saturday were that at all. Wesley, you know, I just found. Freshman running back that they they were using in Jamar Baynard and Callahan is you know in his in his it's week thirteen but it's his first season as quarterback and so both Ithaca and Wesley I think are going to get a lot better from here on out and whatever they got out of these particular playoffs is something
0: that they can spin forward to next season. Of course, you know when we started recording this podcast, one of the games hadn't even ended yet, and it turned into uh being turned out to be the barn burner that. Uh, that we had uh, said it was a few minutes ago in our teaser that's because at the time we recorded this uh, the beginning of the podcast uh, Hampton Sydney was leading Linfield 21 to 10. Linfield came back of course and won that game 31-21 on Saturday Keith to advance to the national quarterfinals for the third time in the last five years but Keith um, you know you and I have seen Hampton Sydney we've seen that offense quite a bit over the years. Um, And I know you said, I think, as we were watching that first score come in, uh, that Hampton City was going to be able to score points on them. And they did for the first, uh, if I remember correctly, the first 20 minutes and 20 seconds. And then uh, Linfield shut them out the rest of the way.
1: Yeah. And that would have been a major shock to
0: the playoff system, Pat, if they would have been able
1: to sustain that. But I think there's something that happens in the postseason where you're unfamiliar with teams and especially the teams with the really creative offenses. Sometimes it causes a little bit of trouble for a defense, and they may score a touchdown, two touchdowns, or in Hampton-Sydney's case, three touchdowns early. And uh, I think by the third touchdown, the fans out there in McMinnville started to get the sense that maybe this team is for real. But over the course of a 60-minute game, I don't think that uh, Hampton-Sydney matched up quite as well uh, with Linfield defensively. You know, Linfield's battling a lot of, a lot of injuries on defense, and they had a couple more. Big injuries on Saturday. They lost a wide receiver, Charlie Poppin, but they also lost a defensive lineman, uh, and Jeremy Garage. So they they were going deeper and deeper down that roster. And uh, the fact that Linfield is probably is a is a deeper program, has more guys, uh, you know, more talent. Ready to step in, I guess, at any time than, than a team like Hampton Sydney does. Uh, it, you know, it certainly bore out over the course of the game. There were also a couple of big calls uh, in the second half, or, or big plays, you might say, that that went the wrong way uh, for Hampton Sydney. There was a, a fake punt that uh, you know, if they'd gotten it, would have been a huge play for them, and maybe would have re- helped them regain the momentum as they were losing hold of it late in the second half. They uh, the it, the pass was there, but it was incomplete, and so the by them not getting the fake punt, Linfield scores real quickly after that. Hampton Sydney actually leads going into the fourth quarter. Linfield scores on the first play of the fourth quarter, and, and it was all Linfield from there. I thought that, that, that changed the momentum a lot.
0: Keith, the experience for, for me listening to that game, uh, I remember um, you and I driving back from a playoff game at Widener back in, you know, in the early part of the last decade, listening to the Miracle in the Mud take place over the phone, Um, my wife had tuned in the, uh, had tuned in the game on the computer at home, had set up the phone next to it and walked away. And we were listening to the way that, that, that crazy game ended. Um, you know, on, on, on Saturday night with the, uh, the game coming down. And, uh, I know you were listening to it. I don't know if you, maybe you were listening to it on, uh, the... On the app that the Hampton Sydney radio station had, I was listening to it the exact same way I listened to that game a decade ago. I had a computer set up in my office here at home, with the phone set up next to it. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, in a sense. But also uh, another, uh, just another great game on the West Coast.
1: Well, when you started saying that, Pat, I didn't know where you were going with it, and. Uh it's interesting that you say the more they they uh, change, the more they stay the same. Because I thought, for, for me, I had the opposite experience, where you know, for years I've been driving back and forth from Northern Virginia to to Wesley because Wesley's been a you know, perennial playoff team, and it's so close. It's about a two two and a half hour drive from my house. So it's a, it's a the deeper we get into the playoffs, the fewer sites we can get to easily, as as you well know, and. Um, being able to call up the game, as soon as I got in the car, I'm in the parking lot at Westley being able to call up the second half through, you know, you go to the scores page on d3football.com and you have the L link, the V link, the LS for live stats. You just hit the A link for audio and um, I piped it in through my phone, through my car stereo and listened to the second half. And uh, there were a couple of places where, where it dropped out a little bit, but I was um, happy to be able to do that. And it would be nice, I know this is not practical, but it would be nice to be able have these playoff games staggered over the course of the weekends so you could go to one and then listen to the other ones. I don't know how big of a concern that would be for, for D3 fans as a whole, but there are certainly diehards among us, and, and that probably includes everybody listening to the podcast who would like to be able to watch and listen to uh, to more than one game. But that sort of just really isn't the case because they all kick off at noon local time.
0: The uh, And on the opposite end, of course, Keith is recording this portion of the podcast in his car on Skype with a Bluetooth headset. So, um, yeah, some sometimes things do change. Uh, back to the actual game for a second. One of the things that uh, would concern me, obviously, if I were a Linfield fan, were the fact that, uh, you know, Josh Yoder threw three interceptions, um, you know, a couple of them in obviously real key spots. And, you know, when a game is... Uh, when you're trailing by, you know, three scores early and two scores in the second half, obviously every interception is in a key spot. But, um, you know, uh, Yoder, um, kind of like um, you know, Mark Myers at, at John Carroll before him last week and, you know, kind of a little bit like uh, John Kelly for Platteville on Saturday, guys who came in highly touted. And as the playoffs get deeper, you get deeper in, obviously the, the, uh, the defenses ramp up a little bit against you too.
1: Absolutely, but the the comments that I read on on Twitter during the first half of that game, as we were wrapping things up at Wesley, were that uh, that Yoder was, was maybe feeling the pressure a little bit and trying to force it um, rather than letting the game come to him. And over the especially when you're the better team, you're the team that's at home, you're the one that's expected to win. Even if you get down early, and twenty-one-three is certainly a significant deficit. There's no guarantee that you can come back from that. Linfield it was important for them to be able to settle down to be able to get Josh Hill, the running back going and once they get their their running game going then you know the the pass opens up off of that and you know not to let that that road team build you know build off that their early success and and for Hampton Sydney it was it was quick and fast and obviously they dominated the first 20 minutes and then Linfield uh, took care of business over the last 40. If I were a a Wildcats fan though I, I don't know if I'd be so concerned because i think if as you look across this bracket here and pat i know we're going to talk about just every all uh eight of the games from saturday as you look across this bracket i don't think there's a there, there are two teams that haven't struggled that's mary hard and baylor north central but you look at the other dominant teams across the country and they've all had portions of games so far in these playoffs where they struggled whitewater didn't really get going against st norbert in the first round until about the third quarter you look at mount union back and forth with Wittenberg for a quarter and a half Washington and Jefferson game was close for the first half and then both games Mountain Union dominated in the second half and I actually got a chance to watch a bunch of that on uh, on Sports Time Ohio last night so so I think there are teams across the country dominant teams that have had that have struggled for portions of playoff games and I'm not sure if I would I would be so concerned about Josh Yoder pressing a little bit or Linfield's struggle of a game because they were able to exercise their dominance over the, the finish
0: of it. So obviously, yeah, there were a couple of teams, only a couple of teams that haven't struggled. Um, do we look at the uh, one of the other tight games from Saturday? The way that the Bethel Warper game ended, of course, um, and the way the middle of the Bethel Warper game went down. Um, I want to go back to a point that um, was a little bit uh, it was a little bit contentious, shall we say. Uh, Matt Melhorn returns a blocked extra point, 98 yards for a defensive two-point conversion, but the officials only consent one point to be put on the board, so the score is 20 to 18 on the scoreboard for a little while, and then Bethel comes down and scores again. And knowing that or thinking that they're uh, that they're down by two, they go ahead and go for the two-point conversion to go up by seven or to go up by six. But it turns out after that, the officials realize where they had screwed up and then uh, all of a sudden Bethel has a seven-point lead. It turned out to not be an issue because Bethel ended up uh, scoring with a buck 18 to go and won by seven, but, Keith, that could have been really disastrous, say, if Bethel had gone for that two-point conversion unnecessarily and missed it, and then uh, Warburg had been able to come down and win with six. And the only thing I can really say to that is that
1: can't happen. It's okay to... uh, to blow a call or to miss a call or to have some an occasion where the officials have to get together and sort it out but for seven man crews and i think we're all on seven man crews in the playoffs yeah um for seven guys to not know the rule that that's disturbing i guess you'd say yeah and uh it, it you know for it for it to be that was the the closest game of the of the playoffs score wise. So if it, you know, if it had a big effect on that game, that would have been a a serious problem. Something maybe not as sinister, maybe as the Rowan Bridgewater thing of years uh, of 2001, but it would be, it would have been a moment that we'd remember for years and years and years had it had an effect on the game. And it's, it just uh, obviously can't happen. And you got, you got to get that corrected.
0: You know and and the good thing that it was corrected got to be honest with you, Keith. um my understanding is the only reason it was corrected is because I looked up the rule from twelve hundred miles away on the east Coast, and uh, I googled the the scorebook the uh, rule book rule, texted it to uh my brother, our photographer on the sidelines at Bethel, who then showed it to the nCA rep on site who then got it fixed there's just no way it should have to fall to one of us to fix somebody's scoring error. It, when you talk about mistakes that have been made, um, the, uh, the, there are so few scoring plays, there are so few ways to score points. One, two, three, six. You know, you can't screw one of those up. And certainly not in the postseason. Uh, in, a, in a game a game in which Wartburg had a couple of shots
1: from about the 15-yard line as time ran out and uh, wasn't able to punch it in. But if they had, that would have been a, certainly a, a, another game that it would would have sent ripples through the uh through the tournament
0: okay and now on to the game itself I think one of the big takeaways from this game is uh twofold one Eric Peterson the Bethel quarterback who I've been uh, talking up most of the season uh left in the uh left in the second half with a separated shoulder uh you know you separate your shoulder in week two of the playoffs I'm not sure we expect to see you back um Tom Keefe came in through 9-of-12 for 148 yards and a couple touchdowns, and now he has two weeks to prepare for... Or two weeks. Now he has a full week to prepare for North Central, but that is a huge blow to a, a Bethel offense that had found itself a little diversity this year as opposed to a couple of their previous teams that have been very run-heavy. Yeah,
1: and that's the same point I was going to make, Pat, that the fact that Keith was able to step in spoke to the, the I guess, the, the preparedness of, of the Bethel program over the years. You know, there had been times where they... They uh, would rarely kick extra points or rarely try field goals. I shouldn't say extra points. I think the field goals was their thing, um, and they they didn't have they didn't have a passing game. And then you had Peterson this year, where um, you know he'd he'd have games where he'd be twenty five of twenty seven or something like that, very accurate um, over the course of a full game, and and that had given them more than than just that traditional run offense. And Bethel had always been a, a team that had you know big linemen up front and was able to pound it. Uh, running the ball and that worked. That works great, not only in the Mayak, but as you get deeper into the postseason and you're playing these games in the Midwest and the West where it can be snowy at this time of year, weather could be a factor. It worked out great for Bethel, and uh, and now to have a court that they can really depend on, and, and then not have him uh, be available next week for North Central in a game where I think Bethel's really going to need to score some points. I, I don't think there's a hope of of shutting. North Central's offense completely down um it's going to be a tough challenge for Keith but he was up to the challenge in the in the second half against Warburg
0: one of the things that I saw and that I read uh, about this game over the course of the you know the past 24 hours or so is uh Steve Johnson the Bethel coach talking about Keith Keith being a guy who's a senior who you know was beaten out by a younger guy uh in a lot of cases you know if you're a you know, a a senior quarterback and you're destined to, you know, ride the pine potentially for the rest of your career. Sometimes those guys give up. Sometimes those guys leave the program. Sometimes those guys, you know, just don't necessarily work hard to get better. But um, uh, Johnson and the Bethel people really praised how much uh, Keefe has continued to work and and get better over the past year plus that he's not not been playing.
1: Uh, certainly a testament to what kind of guy
0: he is. And I think sometimes you get deep into your career and it's
1: too late to change or transfer and, and your choices. Yeah. Either quit football or, or say, you know, I've been a Bethel Royal or whatever the program is, you know, my, for the past two and a half or three or, you know, however many years and you say, well, I'm going to just see this thing out where you got a good team. And the only thing you can do as a backup quarterback, you don't know if you're going to play that week, but you have to prepare like you're going to play it. And uh, this was his moment and he really shined. And I'm, I, I guess it's, good for him that we're we're getting a moment to talk about him and now he has a week where he's going to prepare like the starter
0: so they faced north central uh north central really did not uh did not have too many problems with whitewater key or or sorry with Platteville. um you know i came into this game i think uh, most of us thought that this was going to be a shootout a pretty back and forth type of game um and the uh the north central defense Really shut them down, especially in the first quarter. North Central jumped out to a twenty-one to three lead, and it was, um, you know, similarly it was forty-two seven after the first score of the third quarter. And uh, North Central just did a great job of uh, holding Platteville at arm's length.
1: Yeah, well, North Central puts a lot of pressure on on teams with that offense, and I I can't even think of a time this season when I've talked about North Central's defense, and that's not to say they're bad on defense, but it's the offense i think that stirs the drink for them because it's first of all it's diverse in what they're what they're able to run they're they have a quarterback in spencer stanick who can throw and he can execute the read option but they also speed up their offense they they basically they're not huddling they're calling the plays at at the line and uh, they're able to move at a tempo that puts a lot of pressure on the defense and again we go back to the point that we made a few minutes ago where in the postseason, you get a couple tapes, but it's the first time you've seen a team. And, if, and to see a up-tempo offense at live speed, it, it takes a quarter or two quarters for you to do those two quarters, and you've already given up 42 points. It puts a lot of pressure on your offense, obviously.
0: Some of the uh, standout numbers for North Central on Saturday. Uh, junior running back Ryan Kent, uh, career high with 257 rushing yards on just 27 carries. Um, if we were doing a team of the week, in the uh, postseason, I, I'm not sure I've seen uh, much better numbers than that. That's As you know, that uh, if you can do the math, that's almost 10 yards a carry. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, Chad O'Kane with a, a huge long touchdown catch uh, for his part as well, an 83-yard touchdown reception um, as part of a seven catch for a 132-yard day, one of his, his three touchdowns. That's something that, um, you know, obviously – uh, you know Bethel sees some pretty good receivers every day in practice, but uh it's you know it, it's something that they're going to have to contend with. Both that and the the great run game that they've exhibited in uh, recent weeks.
1: Yeah, I think we're reaching the point Bethel and North Central where you know, and, and really North Central, this happened already in round two. But you reach a, a point in the season where you're not going to overwhelm teams with your talent. Uh, a top level Mayak team is is about the level as a top level CCIW team, and so this is the best. Uh, the CCIW has to offer in North Central, number one seed, obviously, in its bracket. Bethel, the best team in what was one of the two best conferences in in Division Three football this season in the MIAC. So, you know, you, you, you look at this and you say North Central's got the explosive offense. And how's Bethel going to keep up with it? But I, I think talent-wise, the two teams match up pretty well. And it may be fair to guess that it's not going to be a 42-7 type of game. Uh, you know, for North Central at any point during this one, that they were going to have to work for it and play all four quarters.
0: Our uh, our friend Gordon Mann, who's uh, contributed more on D3 hoops than D3 football of late, uh, still took a look at the national quarterfinal um, matchups or the rundown or the, you know, the makeup of those, of that final eight teams and, and saw some pretty uh, interesting patterns. Uh, one of which is that uh, there's always been, Almost In the last eight years, there's almost always been an MIAC team in the final eight. Uh, there's just one year that it didn't happen, and that was uh, when uh, in 2008 when St. John's lost at Whitewater early on. Um, Mountain Union's always been in the round of eight uh, you know, for the last 22 years, including for the last eight. Whitewater's been there seven out of eight. Wesley's been there seven out of eight. Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor's been there seven out of eight. An MIAC team has been there seven out of eight. Um, it really is uh, as much as you know there have been years where there are two teams obviously in the for most of the past eight years that have been head and shoulders above everybody else Uh, and then you know more lately uh, teams like Wesley have come up to almost meet them and Mary Harden Baylor certainly has done a better job of that even than Wesley has Um, but even once you get beyond those four teams there are still some pretty interesting uh, patterns for what the final eight tends to look like in any given year.
1: Sure and there's been a Points this season where we've said, ah, it's, a, it's a six-team race, and it and all six of those teams are still still in it, along with Wesley and along with um, St. John, John Fisher. Fisher, who's been the right. They've been the surprise of the postseason, but but not in a not in a completely out of nowhere way, because the Empire Eight uh, is probably you know one of the we always rank it in the top seven. I think when we when we do the power conferences or we when we rank the conferences, the twenty seven eight or so conferences we have now that that get ranked the empire eight's in the top quarter of that all the time so it's not completely su- surprising especially when you consider that st john fisher has played well in past post seasons it's um it's it's a good final eight and i think sometimes what we end up having is this first round where you get a lot of i was gonna say four five and three six matchups but they could be in d3 we know they could be three five matchups or two three matchups but <clears throat> excuse me you get these matchups that are pretty exciting and you have that first level the first round where it's a whole bunch of different teams and you and you get to know you know, not all the games are good in rounds one and two but that's where you get those a lot of the good finishes and and you get a handful of exciting games between teams that would never meet otherwise you know, hampton sydney linfield being uh part of it and then you have the second level of the postseason which is the really elite teams and i think that's probably as pronounced this year as it has been any year and the good thing about that is I don't think we're seeing a C- you know, it could very well end up being Mountain Union and Whitewater. But if you had to ask right now at this moment, who are the two teams that are most impressive in the playoffs? Who are the two teams that have been most dominant over the course of the season? I don't think you can be in a Whitewater and that be the end of it.
0: Right. Exactly. I think uh, I think Mary Harden Baylor certainly belongs in any of those conversations, for example. Um, so St. John Fisher, uh, you know, obviously they had a, uh, they had a, a tougher opponent perhaps in the first round or at least opponent that we thought was maybe, I don't even really know how to describe it, Keith, but let's put it this way. Once St. John Fisher beat John Carroll, uh, I think it was, uh, a pretty easy pick and all three of us did pick them to beat, uh, Hobart. Yeah. And, you know, part of the reason was the doubt
1: about, uh, quarterback Patrick Conlon's status. And, you know, that was really the main reason I, I went against them. But I think also when you looked at the the matchups, I thought that was the, the game where the road team had the best chance of winning. And, and just because the level of competition that St. John Fisher has played over the course of the season and, uh, you know, against going against the level of competition that Hobart played. Everybody in this postseason has played two teams as good as John Carroll and Hobart. So St. John Fisher's credential, even though they're they're going to have to go down to Mary Harden-Baylor and face what has been, you know, consensus top three team all season. They've played two good teams in the first round, and so they're they're not like a, a, say, a a Whitewater who's coming in playing St. Norbert and then Franklin, and then is really going to have to, they're going to see a new talent level when they play Linfield this week. St. John Fisher, I think, has had a couple of tough games, and, and they've, you know, met the challenge.
0: As far as St. John Fisher, uh, the game itself versus Hobart, Keith, uh, you know St. John Fisher just looked uh, on, on paper looks fairly dominant, and Hobart doesn't get on the board until the final fifty-seven seconds of the game, um, you know, and it, it, it's in a sense it's St. John Fisher doing what St. John Fisher does in November. It's uh, you know going out and and showing it. You know, we talked a little bit, obviously already about the the strength of the conference, and I think just in general, St. John Fisher has been a great. Um, Demonstration of the fact that uh, strength of schedule is important.
1: Yeah, I mean they started testing themselves from before the Empire Eight schedule by scheduling Washington and Jefferson and Otterbein as uh, as two of their non conference games, and then playing that Empire Eight schedule. And uh, you know, by the time you get to the playoffs, you've seen maybe you know maybe not everything there is to see, but certainly you know you're ready for a first round, second round type of matchup. And and like like we said just a minute ago, they've they've had pretty tough matchups in both rounds and it fared well both times.
0: So we've been having trouble with Keith's audio over the course of the last few minutes of this podcast and uh, rather than try to stick with Skype, which has been giving us trouble, uh, we're going with plain old telephone service. And so, I apologize, Keith. Now sounds uh, straight out of a speakerphone. But um, wanted to get back to the the Fisher Hobart game, Keith. It really was a, a situation which, even though Hobart had its uh, starting quarterback back, and obviously Stephen Webb was healthy, they didn't really get anything going on offense. No, and,
2: and they weren't able to do it, whether they were passing or running. The the totals for the game. Were, uh, were 120 yards rushing and 121 yards, passing four yards per play. Either way, they tried to move the ball. And uh, Hobart had an early drive that ended uh, with a fumble. They punted a couple times, and then they had one big drive, 14-play uh, 62-yard drive that ended on down. Uh, and, and that was probably their best chance to score early in the game. And even at, at the half, they were only down uh, 14 or down 17. Yeah, down 14 at the half, and then uh, the early field goal in the third quarter for St. John Fisher, and there was a the whole wide defense. I think was was uh, was keeping them in the game, but they could just never get anything going offensively.
0: Once upon a time, Keith, uh, we could compare the way the Mac played football to the way the Centennial played football. It seemed like the Mac played a little bit more of a maybe a hard nosed brand of football. Some of those changes have mellowed over the course of the last few years, but I still see uh, I still feel like that comparison might be valid for the Empire Eight versus the Liberty League.
2: I think the results bear that out. Just as you go into the postseason, whether it's times that that the Empire Eight in the league meet head to head, or just which which league uh, from up you know comprised mostly of upstate New York teams has a uh, has a team standing longer, it tends to be the Empire Eight.
0: Moving on to the Rowan Mary Harden, Baylor game, um, like we've seen happen in a lot of cases, the team that gets the ball first, even if they're the underdog, does manage to come down and score. Uh, Rowan did so, uh, uh with a 51 yard drive in the first 3:43 of the game, extra point kick was blocked and it was basically all Mary Harden Baylor from there.
2: And, and that's been the formula for every Mary Harden Baylor game, uh, pretty much this entire season. There have been a couple of times where, where teams have put some points on the board against them in the second half, but they've almost always overwhelmed from the start. You go back to that Wesley game that you saw earlier in the season and Wesley and Rowan played a close game, So you might expect them to play similar games against Mary Hart and Baylor. But right now, I think the first two games of the postseason have shown that Mary Hart and Baylor is, is certainly head and shoulders above Redland and Rowan. And, and I don't know if Rowan came in expecting that. You remember uh, during the week back there with that, that quote where well, we played tough teams all year, teams like Mary Hart and Baylor all year. Well, you have Rowan had played tough teams. In, in, a, in a different sense but Mary Harden Baylor certainly by far the best one they faced and uh, there was no doubt about it on Saturday
0: yeah I mean you know so someone on I don't remember if it was comments on the blog or comments on uh, one of the one of our stories this week uh, tried to make that case um, and my response back to them was well the best team that Rowan has played is Wesley and Wesley was basically never on the field against Mary Harden Baylor they uh, they really got trounced uh, similarly, uh, you know, Rowan beat Kane seven to six and Mary Harden Baylor beat Kane pretty convincingly, uh, even despite switching quarterbacks in the middle of the game. Um, I just didn't, I didn't really think that there was much, uh, much reason for bravado, bravado, I guess is the word I'm looking for.
2: Well, the quarterback that Mary Harden Baylor switched to in that game was, is, is Zach Anderson. And he's, uh, He's been a heck of a runner as well as a passer for for Mary Hart and Baylor, and that gives them. I mean, they, I guess they've often had quarterbacks who can run, but but they've they've really got a uh, a dynamic offense with Elijah Hudson in the backfield, and then Zach Anderson being able to throw the ball and run it.
0: Last year, when uh you know uh, when Ladarrell Bailey was a senior, it was one of those opportunities where you know Mary Hardin Baylor had. That multiple-faceted guy, but started for several seasons uh, and almost uh, upset Mount Union and uh, went back to the Stag Bowl. Obviously, Anderson doesn't have the long track record that uh, Bailey did, but he has certainly been a a dual-faceted guy for them as well. Uh, We've got a couple of other top seeds to talk about. The Mount Union-Wittenberg game, Keith, was interesting for... Well, I mean, it was a it was really really interesting for a quarter, and then interesting until about at halftime, and then Mountain Union was Mountain Union pretty much after that.
2: And, and the thing about Mountain Union is is their offense over the course of a game is not only tough to stop, but it's sustainable because they hit big plays in the passing game, but they also chip away at you running. They'll they'll do things with with Kevin Burke or short screens, and they have just a number of guys. They're not a, nobody really dominant in in the way that. Cecil Shorts or or Nate Kamek or Pierre Garcon, West but but a number of guys who can contribute to an offense. And there's nobody, there's not there's not many defenses that have you know five cornerbacks that can cover or or uh, the defensive line that's great and linebackers that are great and cornerbacks that are great. So Mountain Union, their offense I think is sustainable over the course of a full game because they hit you from so many different ways. Where Wittenberg, they got on the board in that game with a couple big passes, and and Reed Lawrence is, is a dynamic quarterback, no doubt. Tall, lanky guy, big, strong arm, and he has a couple of of the receivers. In uh, uh, De- you know, Desi Kirkman is one of them, and BJ Cunningham. I think I may be uh, forgetting his last name. Actually,
0: was- yeah. Well, he's listed as Brendan in the box score, but then again, BJ Mitchell is listed as Bradley in the box score. The,
2: the BJ guys, you know, they're the the one the ones that were throwing us off were the, all the guys named B on on Wesley yesterday.
0: But um, that's right.
2: Yeah, it, Wittenberg has a couple of real dynamic um playmakers, but when you, you hit you, you hit a couple of plays in the game and then you're not able to establish the run. It's not sustainable over the course of the game and I think we saw something similar happen with hampton Sydney where once Linfield felt them out a little bit and and, and realised what was coming at them, they were able to slow them down for the the latter two thirds of that game. And it was sort of the same case in, um, in, in Wittenberg mountain union, even the touchdown that Wittenberg scored in the second half of that game, they hit a big pass play over the middle and then quickly drove into the end zone. It wasn't like they, they were able to grind it out going down the field.
0: The, uh, the one thing that's emerged for mountain union over the course of the past couple weeks is Sherman Wilkinson. He's a wide receiver. Who's a, you know, is much more of a deep threat than maybe some of the other guys that they have on the roster. And, uh, on Saturday, at a 57-yard touchdown catch, and a real good game in the first-round game against W and J as well.
2: Yeah, well, that that touchdown catch from Wilkinson was was one where Wittenberg, I think, lost him defensively because he just ran down the sideline and the, the safety didn't get over from from the middle of the field and the cornerback wasn't dropping deep enough, and it, you know it was just a catch and run for uh, for Sherman Wilkinson. The guy who who really jumps out to me when I watch him is Luke Meacham. I think he's he's the one who's typing for balls and making long plays on, on Saturday. There was a catch on the sideline where he had to go up and get it and then come down with his feet inbound. And then you have uh, you know you have Jack Nichols as well who's who's emerged as a pretty dependable target for Kevin Burke. So I think as we talked about at the beginning of the season, you know, we didn't know what their playmakers were going to be like because there's so many different guys. They uh, they have a bunch of them
0: now. And uh Whitewater uh defeating Franklin thirty three to three um, you know, this is a game where Whitewater got started a little sooner. Uh, they only scored seven points in the first quarter, but uh, first quarter drive carried over into the first minute of the second quarter. And they were up 14 nothing fairly early, uh, scoring on two of their first three drives. Um, and similarly to what they've done to almost everybody else this season, uh, they really shut down the run game for Franklin. In this case, it was four net yards on 24 rushes.
2: And boy, is that going to be an epic battle on Saturday because I think Linfield may run the ball better this season than it has in some of the past seasons where they've had the real star quarterback, the, the Mickey ends, or you can go all the way back to the Brett Elliott, um, where they've had the star quarterback and they've just spread teams out and throw the ball. Well, this year they can really run it, uh, especially with, with Josh Hill back healthy, but they also have, uh, they have more than one back that, that's pretty good too. So I think that's going to, that's, going to be a big focus this coming Saturday because whitewater has done a great job of, of taking away the run and making teams one dimensional all season. And I, I look at that game on Saturday against Franklin and what whitewater and the three impresses me much more than the 33, even though we've talked several times about whitewater needing to get to generate some offense to support that defense, as long as your defense is only giving up three points and that's going against a fairly dynamic offense that, that Franklin runs. uh, yeah, I think as long as that defense is playing top-notch, Whitewater's got a chance
0: to keep on winning. Agreed. Uh, you know, compa- uh, From what you said about thinking Hampton-Sydney could score on Linfield, uh, even though I think we both thought, certainly from triple-take predictions would say that uh, we both thought that Linfield would win the game, I thought similarly that Franklin would be in a position where they could put up some points on Whitewater, and they just really didn't. Uh, Johnny West, you know, f- you know, Franklin forced to throw all the time, 33 of 63 passing got picked off three times and just, you know, they put up some, they put up some offense, obviously, you know, total offense. They actually outgained Whitewater 301 to 293, but uh, one dimensional and couldn't get in the end zone.
2: Well, and you you mentioned those turnovers, Pat, those those are big. A guy can go up and down the field, but if those picks come in key situations and your your defense is, is able to make somebody one dimensional and, generate some turnovers, that can be a big factor in the game. And that's something that we didn't mention when we talked about St. John Fisher and Hobart. You know, St. John Fisher got 17 points off Hobart turnovers, and if you're able to to spot teams that much in the postseason, or if your defense is is not just dynamic against one facet of the offense, but also generated turnovers, you put your offense in real good shape
0: we're going to talk a lot more about uh, these four quarterfinal matchups throughout the course of the week. And of course you can find our predictions for the scores of those games in triple take on Friday morning, but I thought maybe we'd spend a couple minutes just to talk about each one of these a little bit. Um, just because, you know, I really think, uh, we have, uh, we have a a potential for some really fantastic games here. Uh, so Wesley goes to Mount Union, Bethel hosts North Central, Linfield goes to Whitewater and Mary Harden Baylor hosts St. John Fisher. Um, that's probably the the game that's most on the fence for me as to whether it's going to be whether it can be a knockdown dragout game. It seems like you know that um, you know we we'll talk about the the usual suspects, the team from the east that gets this far, that gets to the quarterfinals. In most cases has um has gotten its bell rung in that final uh in that final time around uh Yohobart know, uh and St. John Fisher by St. Thomas the past couple of years Widener, of course by Mount Union although you know not unusual for Mount Union to do that to somebody uh Salisbury to Whitewater uh, you go back further uh, Alfred and Albright and Cortland State and St. John Fisher uh and all lost to uh Mount Union as well um it seems like yeah, you got. I have to worry about in the back of my mind that that being another situation coming up on Saturday.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's not something that uh that that's out of the realm of possibility. St. John Fisher going down to Texas and playing in that big stadium where where now they've got a rowdy home atmosphere where before they were playing in sort of a wide open high school stadium. But but you got to give St. John Fisher credit because they went up to Cleveland and won. They they beat St. John. Uh, being John Carroll on the road, they be Hobart on the road. So I don't know if they're going to be shaken by having to play a road game. I think the big thing is just being able to match that talent level. And, and it, it seems to happen every year, as you mentioned, Pat, when the, the further Eastern team gets into the playoffs, you get up against one of these real elite teams, and they just happen to all be based in the Midwest and West at this point. I don't think there's anything to the, the geography necessarily to say football in Wisconsin is better than football in New York. It's just that the dominant programs right now, uh, all happen to be in different regions and it's been that way for 15 or 20 years in D3. And, and it's another chance for, for St. John Fisher to break through for someone from the East. But, um, they, they couldn't have drawn, I guess, a worse matchup because Mary Harden Baylor is, uh, is pretty darn tough this season.
0: The Wesley Mount Union game. So I picture in the I, I picture this game maybe starting out like the Mount Union wittenberg game did, and then I think that you know Wesley uh, had obviously quite a deal of success running the ball on Saturday against Ithaca. They had some good push up front. Um, you know, had a lot of uh, holes to run through for Jamar Baynard, but you know, going against a, a much tougher defensive unit, I'm not sure how much that will be evident.
2: Well, the one thing that that stands out to me, I think, for for Wesley is that they're they're playing with nothing to lose, and they have been playing with nothing to lose for the past several weeks since they lost the second game during the regular season and thinking maybe they're out of the playoffs, and and they're going to go up there and not have the pressure that they've had the past two trips to Alliance, where their their program is feeling like it's ready to break through to Salem, and this is the year, this is our best team, this is not the best Wesley team, it's not the best Mount Union team either, but for for Western to go, you know, to have a chance, they have to they have to sort of believe in themselves and uh, and go out there and, and be loose. And I, I think actually this is the type of team that's not going to put the pressure on themselves to think that, that that they have to be valued. And I think I think there was a time when they ran up against White Water and they ran up against Mount Union a couple of years in the postseason where they felt like you know they, they put a lot of pressure on themselves in these games. So they're going to go out there, they'll play loose. I think they have a real nice defensive line. We saw that on Saturday against Ithaca. And certainly playing Mount Union is going to be another step above, especially when I sit and watch these Mount Union games and the, the clean pocket that Kevin Burke has to work from. You know, for, for Wesley to have a chance, they're going to have to disrupt that.
0: We heard Mike Drass talk in the postgame on Saturday about how you can't treat this game against Mount Union as the Stag Bowl because it's really not.
2: Yeah, it's true. I don't know if you were if you had more that you were gonna gonna add to that, but you're right. I think there were times for for Wesley where they put all their marbles um, into winning, you know, in a in a quarterfinal or a semifinal round, and um, it, 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 they they won't have that pressure necessarily this year because they they this is not the, this is not that team for them. They're young, they you know they they've got a a quarterback that they've had off season, but Jamar Baynard, as you talked about, a freshman who stepped in that Young on the offensive line. A lot of the guys, they just don't have too many seniors in key roles, and they've been beaten and battered all season, but they keep on getting up and, and advancing another round, so uh, for whatever that's worth, they'll they'll go out there and, and play loose, and this is the type of Mountain Union team that they actually have a chance against, um, as opposed, I mean, I guess the, the other Wesley teams were much better Wesley teams, but they are also facing much better Mountain Union teams, so well, uh, that could be. It could get interesting, or it could be, you know, at the typical quarterfinal round game for Mountain Union.
0: We talked about the North Central Bethel game a little bit already. Um, you know, we're not expecting Eric Peterson to uh, to play quarterback for Bethel. Uh, we you know, mentioned that. Um, you know, we need uh, you know, about Bethel going up and down the field, etc., being. Uh, to having to hang with North Central a little bit. Not that North Central is going to put up 52 points. Is there anything else that we need to say about this game uh, other than what we're going to write later in the week?
2: Yeah, I think that's I was going to say, the same thing, that this is one of the ones we'll have to think about and learn about more during the week, because right now the storyline is, okay, North Central has this dynamic offense. nobody slowed them down. They've played only CCIW and WIAC teams off season. They, have but, this, well, they haven't built this resume against anybody that we consider weak. You go into Bethel. What is Bethel going to do to to slow them down a little bit? You know, if Bethel can keep this game in the twenties, and thirties, maybe they have a chance. But if, but if they let North Central get going offensively, uh, you know, if they're able to run the ball with Ryan Kent and throw it all over the field, it could get could be trouble and could be the first number one seed to bite the dust in this tournament.
0: Yeah, North Central did play Albion in the first round, but I'm not sure that they burnish their reputation based on uh, that 63 to seven walkover in the first round. And then we get to the game which. You know, from all indications, uh, should be maybe the best game of the four uh, between Whitewater and Linfield with Linfield going to Whitewater. And, you know, obviously these teams have engaged in a couple of classic battles before in 2005, a real high scoring game. A few years later on, a really low scoring game in the national semifinals. Um, And you know that they're going to be, you know, looking forward to lacing them up against each other once again.
2: Sure, and, and this one, this one may be the story of, of which defense plays better, because Whitewater is a little bit limited offensively this season. It's just they don't have the dynamic playmakers that some of their great teams have had, and uh, Linfield's defense has been great for most of the season. What needs to to get off to a better start than they did against Hampton Sydney, and I think the difference maybe in this one is that Whitewater's is not going to show you as many different looks as Hampton Sydney. As Whitewater is more of a team that they don't care whether you know what's coming. They're going to line up and, and run right over you. And so for Linfield, there'll be maybe a little bit less thinking going on out there for the defense, a little bit less feeling out early on. And this is a game where they'll have to use their physicality. And, and to be honest, they may miss some of those defensive linemen that they've lost over the course of the season. And uh, in, in Brandon Highland, the great defensive end, Tyler Steele, defensive tackle. And, uh, you know, I don't know Jeremy uh, Gerard's status, but if he's able to come back, that would certainly... Help them because this is the, the point in the season where you may start to miss those guys, those, that real physical presence up front that can go man for man with white water.
0: One of the other things that uh, came out way back at the beginning of last week, for those of you who uh, can remember anything through the trip to fan f- haze that is uh, Thanksgiving, was the uh, 10 finalists for the Gilardi Trophy. Or the... Uh, the the yeah ten finalists even though there's a final four later we they still haven't come up with a, a different name or a better name to talk about these guys um you know is it a reminder the Gallardi Trophy and for those of you who have never heard John Gagliardi's last name pronounce it yeah that's John Gallardi G A G L I A R D I the uh trophy given to as I like to put it, the top all around student athlete in Division three football because it takes into account football prowess as well as academics and community service which is why sometimes uh, some of the people who uh, aren't on the finalist list aren't on the finalist list, or maybe weren't even nominated, and we don't know a whole lot of details about uh, anybody who wasn't on the list. So, uh, but we do know about these ten guys: uh, Kevin Burke of Mount Union, um, who you know obviously we mentioned multiple times over the course of the season; uh, Graham Craig. At LaGrange, Austin Dimashki of Concordia, Wisconsin. McCallum Foote of Middlebury. Cole Klotz, the Whitewater linebacker. Kyle Linville, receiver at Franklin. Octavius McCoy, running back from Western Connecticut State. Adam Talat, the senior defensive end of Gallaudet. Keith Welch, senior quarterback from Lewis and Clark. And Erica Westerberg, a linebacker, senior from Augustana. Um, you know, Keith, obviously our ballots aren't due for another week. Uh, there are a couple of guys still playing. Um, in Klotz and Burke, and uh, I'm not sure if any of if either of those can either of those guys can do anything in the final week to really influence the spot on the ballot. But your general thoughts about this uh, candidate class here?
2: Well, I think that that Kevin Burke is probably the favorite as long as Mountain Union continues playing. And it was certainly noteworthy that Mountain Union decided to nominate its most likely to win player. I won't say best player necessarily, but Burke is certainly. The most likely to win he's a junior but he's also known as as a leader around the program so he's, he's the only starter that was back at the beginning of the season on offense and uh, there have been seasons in the past where the obvious guy on Mount Union hasn't been the one that the school has nominated for the award and that may be one of the biggest differences between the Gallardi trophy and some of the other trophies from other divisions that you may be familiar with but it starts at the school Nominating the guy, then it goes to the the uh, the, the J Club, the committee that that helps pick um, the Gallardi Trophy, and then w- when it gets to us, the voters, we're just down to these final ten. These are the guys that they're working with. I think there are three pretty big dark horses, though, that that could give Burke a challenge. And this has to do with you know the makeup of the, com- of the committee, which is some people who follow D three very closely, and some people who I think maybe just just um, pay attention around the time when it's time to vote. You know, there's Burke. I think McCoy, because he had that uh four hundred and sixty five yard game in the middle of the season, certainly got a lot of press and uh it wasn't a it wasn't a fluke game because we as we mentioned on previous podcasts, he'd had big games before during the season, so his total season numbers will be pretty big. Only nine games for Western Connecticut, so they aren't as big as possible. But that's uh that's one reason I think Adam Talat, somebody who's getting some recognition as a potential NFL prospect. I think you have the the, the story with uh, Gallaudet and and people getting to know that program and, and that school, what it stands for and what it is. I think that is something that may sway some voters. And um, McCallum Foote is another one who you just don't know what to make of somebody who's been the NESCAC, someone who probably will have top-notch at academic credentials, service credentials, and his numbers are only eight-game numbers. So I don't know if voters take, are, are paying attention to that um, because the NESCAC teams only play uh, the short season. They don't participate in the playoffs. So, you know, that he's not going to have a national championship on his resume. He's not going to have playoff victories. But at, at least for me, I feel like I have to go out of my way to judge him fairly with his eight games per season going against somebody who may be playing as many as 15 games this season. Although, you know, we, as you mentioned, we have to vote uh, before well before the stag ball.
0: Um There's so there's often in a list like this, I, I look at the list and I think, okay, these are three or four guys are going to be at the top of my ballot. Here's, you know, two or three guys who I'm not really sure why they're here Um they're at the bottom of my ballot and, um, I have said this, and I I know that I've said this to you in email, but we haven't talked about it. Um, you know, there's a guy on this list who doesn't have any Division three academic credentials whatsoever. Uh, Graham Craig, who transferred in, he started his uh, career at Moorhead State, a D one FCS school. Last year, he played at Valdosta State. This year, he transferred to Lagrange. You know, he has never had a Division three report card. I just didn't really know what to make of that. And I think I'm actually going to leave that last spot of my ballot blank. And for me, that would be a first. There's no There's never been a, a time where I just thought that he doesn't even meet this year as a junior doesn't meet the basic requirements.
2: That's an interesting personal decision too. And I don't think that you, you definitely rule out somebody who's transferred in, you know, McCown foot started at Brown. Um, There, there've been other players who become great division three players that, started somewhere else, so it's not just that, but you're, but you're saying that he hasn't even um, done a, a full semester of academics, and so if you consider this a three-pronged award, you have to be great at football, great at, in the classroom, in D3, and uh, also someone who has service credentials in the community, well, well, he may be missing that middle one. The, uh, the you
0: know, reason, think- yeah, the reason why I think this, it goes back to, um we uh back in 2004 when linfield was making a run to the national championship behind brett elliott and they chose not to nominate him because for that very reason that was the reason that was uh, described to me because i asked the question because he's a guy who was you know i don't even remember we had if we had an offensive player of the year um award that year if we'd started at that point but he would have been a, a shoe in for for that uh for that honor and quarterbacks do well in these kind of, uh, in these kind of overall national, uh, awards. And they said it was basically because he had had no academic track record whatsoever in division three.
2: Yeah. But, but the counterpoint to that is in the, the, the Larry trophy committee always stressed this, that it's a, it's a football award first and you should consider the service and the academic credentials, but give it to the best player. And so in this case, I, I don't even know if, if that's necessarily, um, I don't think he's somebody that that would have a great chance at winning it anyway except for the fact that uh, LaGrange was one of the top passing offenses in the country pretty much um, the entire season, and, and quarterbacks, as you mentioned, do well. In these type of awards, but I think when you really uh, get down to to the intangibles, you certainly have some other guys on the board, the ones I mentioned, who have a, a pretty good chance at, at
0: being the nominee. Of course, it's awards season in a lot of cases, too, not just for the Galardi Trophy, the uh, D3Football.com All-Region nominations deadline passed Sunday night um however on monday uh of this week every year what we do is we send an email out to all the conferences uh asking them to please double check everybody who's on this list against your all conference team and if you think there's somebody who ought to be nominated could you please follow up with that school so today is kind of a a built-in dead day we do that so we can try to get as many worthy players nominated as possible there's always a possibility of someone falling through the cracks, but we had, I think more than 900 players nominated last year. And we were uh, looking like we would probably get that uh, again this season. And so just a reminder, um, you know, if, uh, if, if you're a coach listening to this, and I know a lot of our uh, listenership is coaches, um, you know, be nice to your SID. They've probably already done this. Uh, you know, 75% of them probably already have. It might be worth asking the question just to double check. Um, and if you're a fan, this is not your area. Don't go bugging your SID. That's not what, uh, that's not what we're here to, to, to ask you to do. But, Keith, it's, uh, it's, always a, it's always a fun time to sit down then and try to figure out, you know, when we're voting on these things, how to rank 10 linebackers out of – we always get more linebackers nominated than anybody else, and then quarterbacks, and then running backs and wide receivers. And we never get enough tight ends, defensive tackles, um, and punters. Defenders. Center, Oh, yeah. Uh, centers and guards. Yeah. Lots of, lots of tackles on offense, or a good number of tackles on offense, but not as many of those interior linemen either.
2: Yeah, I mean, my favorite, my, the, the process, I don't know if fun is the word I would use because it, it takes so much time going coming through all this stuff and then comparing the differences, to whether it's somebody who has fewer games than someone else, or someone who missed time injury, or there's all these intangibles. But, but I, I just like that the process takes opinions into account of people who saw games during the course of the year across the country. And so the voters and and all regions feeds up into all Americans. So it comes from people who really paid close attention to D3 this season.
0: Indeed. So keep an eye out for that. We should have the uh, all region list usually published um well actually of course the voting process continues through next sunday so don't look for them this week look for them the following week and then of course as always we will announce the uh, names of the players on the 2013 d3 football.com all-american team on our pregame show which should start somewhere around uh, two o'clock in the afternoon no okay more like five on game day uh december 20th in uh, salem virginia so uh, just a, be mindful of that uh, it's last chance day for that on Monday for those nominations uh, we still accept play of the week nominations uh, I'm hoping that you know the the broadcast that we produced had a pretty spectacular play I'd like to see nominated hint hint um, Dave so um, also we have a um, we have a nomination already from Linfield. There were, you know, some there were some games out there from people and, and schools who tend to provide video. So hopefully we get some of those. Hopefully we see the uh, the Bethel one point slash two point defensive conversion um, play nominated that sort of thing. Uh, still by the end of the day on Monday, five p.m. Eastern is when we like to see those. Uh, and we will have more Road to Salem features uh, throughout the course of the week and uh, get you ready for our predictions on Friday and then the national quarterfinals. On a Saturday. So for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman. That's the Around the Nation podcast.